Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement, it's part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. To paraphrase biomechanist Dr. Stuart McGill, many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you the chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout during your commute, workout, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60-plus minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. FitLab PGH highlights people, locally-owned businesses, and events in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that understand that movement its part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody that you think we should interview? Then drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com or connect with us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, both at underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another Moving to Live podcast. This week, we have part two with Dr. Guillermo Escalante. Remember, Moving to Live is a podcast for movement and exercise professionals as well as amateur aficionados. So whether you're in the movement and exercise profession or you're just somebody who wants to move more, we bring you interviews that are going to give you valuable information, give you extensive show notes so you can go other places for more information because remember, moving is part of what makes your life complete. Guillermo is somebody that I've known for a little bit over a year. I actually met him by email, then I met him in an elevator, and I did not realize until he joined a NSCA Sports Medicine Rehabilitation Facebook page that he was also a physique competitor. So when I started doing uh, the Moving to Live podcast, I wanted interesting people who not only were professionals, but also practiced what they preached. And I immediately reached out to Guillermo. He's generous enough to give us about an hour, an hour and a half of his time to talk a little bit about his experiences and how he got to where he is now. Guillermo, thanks for taking time to talk with us a second time at Moving to Live. Well, thank you for having me again, Dr. Ruder. I appreciate it. I think the question that everybody wants to know is for anybody who is in the movement profession, practices what they preach and does things is, how old were you when you started moving? I know my movement experience started, I was a little kid who kind of ran around and did things. And when I got to middle school, my dad said, well, you can play one sport, but you don't have time to play enough other sports. So I played soccer. And about halfway through the season, my dad said, well, the school's a little bit small, so you should probably support them and play basketball. And as a 13 or 14 year old kid, I thought that was a pretty good idea. And then, uh, about halfway through the basketball season, he said, well, you've played two sports, so you may as well go all three and play baseball. So I was able to play three sports, uh, because, not because I was talented, but because I went to a relatively small school 
now I really do practice what moving to live says. Uh, movement is part of what makes your life complete. And I'm just interested with people that we interview, when did movement or doing something physical really become a priority in your life? Yeah, like like you, Ben, I, I, I started very young. I, uh, I've always enjoyed uh, playing sports. You know, it started, my, my grandfather used to take me to soccer games as a little kid, and I I was uh, I wanted to play soccer. I wanted to, to run. I had an uncle who was a runner uh, who uh, rode bicycles. So I, I really wanted to do all that and be part of that. Um, but I remember my uh, my first really key turn where I was really interested was when I, I at 12 years old, I asked my parents to buy me a nutrition book. We were at a bookstore and my mom said, you know, go look around and see what you guys want to buy. And and I came back and I had this nutrition book, sports nutrition book. And she said, why do you want to buy that? And the reason I wanted to buy it is because I didn't have very good genetics uh, for sports, but I really wanted to be good. I really did. So I figured, well, darn it, if, if I can't if I can't be the best I can because I, I wasn't the best athlete, then I'm going to will myself to be the best athlete. And I wanted to figure out how to do that. So I figured this book might give me some insight into what I could feed myself to become a better athlete. And uh, it was really neat that actually applying what I was applying and working hard, working out hard, reading about working out and uh, implementing it. I was, I was my own science experiment. And I saw that all this stuff really pays off. And uh, before you know it, I was actually a pretty good little athlete. And uh, I sure wasn't like that when I was, uh, you know, 10 or so. I was always kind of the last kid picked. Uh, but by the time I was in eighth grade, I was actually captain of our track team. And I was uh, a starter on our football team. And uh, it was kind of that that whole experience that really made me see that, wow, this, there's some science to uh, working out and to eating right. And do you remember what that textbook or what that book was? It was, it was an old book written by Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, training partner, Franco Colombo. Uh, and there's a lot of things that, that were incorrect in the book. But nonetheless, I had a guide to start with. <laughs> And scarily enough, I'm dating myself. I actually know who you're talking about. <laughs> One of the things that you commonly see for people who are involved in movement is it's assumed that if somebody is in good shape or somebody moves well, it's like, well, they can be my coach. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it isn't the case. I think where we're fortunate enough to have the opportunity to talk with you is not only have you worked as a personal trainer, you're an athletic trainer, you teach at a university, but you also are a practitioner for what you teach. And I think it would be helpful for the listeners if you could talk maybe briefly on the one or two misconceptions that you commonly see in the gym when you work on your training that you wish you could just pull everybody over and say, hey, don't do this, do this instead. Yeah, this is, this is a big problem in particularly in the physique bodybuilding industry, because you have people with amazing physiques. Some are more naturally gifted than others. Uh, and uh, the problem is, is people do one show or two shows, and then now all of a sudden they call themselves an expert. And uh, it's, it's just not the case. And uh, I, I see this a lot with personal trainers. 
that have a nice physique and they train everybody the way they train themselves. And that's just a recipe for disaster. So uh, this is something that I get, I really get scared about, but I also use it as a tool to motivate my students to practice what they preach, because I, I think as healthcare professionals and as fitness professionals, uh, even though you don't have to look like a fitness model, you should be in shape. Uh, you should, you should, you should work out. You should care about uh, your nutrition and, and you should lead by example. So uh, I think it kind of goes both ways. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't know what they're doing who uh, are out there teaching and preaching and shouldn't be. Uh, and then there are other people who, who are very smart and know a lot of what they're doing, but they don't practice what they preach. So the, the end result is, well, who's going to listen to you? And how are you going to motivate others to lead a healthy lifestyle? Somebody starting out, maybe they want to do some sort of physique competition or they just recognize that they need to be more active. Are there any specific certifications or trainings or educations that you would recommend that movement aficionados, people who aren't in the profession, look for? You and I know what to look for, but you and I live it and work with these people every day. Somebody who goes to the gym or maybe joins for the first time has no idea what they're looking for other than saying, well, that guy or that woman looks good. I'll go with them. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of a formal education. So I, I usually, what I would tell people is, you know, ask, ask the person, do you have a degree in this stuff? Because to me, uh, that would be kind of like a, a doctor who calls themselves a doctor not going to medical school. Uh, because we do prescribe, not drugs, we prescribe exercise. Uh, and uh, that's, you need to be able to assess. Just like a doctor diagnosis, we need to assess. And based on that assessment, we're going to prescribe what's appropriate for that person. So a college degree is very important. Now, I understand uh, that there are a lot of people who don't have college degrees. Uh, at the bare minimum, I would say uh, having one of the nationally recognized certifications through the American College of Sports Medicine or through the NSCA uh, or the uh, uh, National Academy of Sports Medicine, they have a they have the certified personal trainer certification, which is a fairly rigorous exam. And I, at, at least you have to have some common level of understanding. Uh, there are some minimum requirements to me, even though you don't have to have a degree. But I would say at minimum, have one of these uh, big three, I call them certifications uh, for personal training uh, and ideally have at least a degree in addition to some of these certifications. I think that's valuable advice. I think the second thing I would add to that if I could, or if somebody's listening and says, I want more information is somebody who regularly goes to conferences. They don't necessarily have to go to a national conference, but I know, for example, the NSCA the National Strength and Conditioning Association, of which both of us are members, have regional conferences conferences, and even state conferences where you can pick up great information and network with other people and gain a whole lot of more knowledge. I think it's important to also mention that even if you aren't a professional but you want to learn more, you can go to a state conference at a quite reasonable price for a weekend. I agree because conferences are invaluable uh, it's to continue to learn because even, even as professionals, that's why you and I attend because we go learn from other professionals and we continue to learn. So that's, it's, it's an evolving thing. 
it it may seem like a uh, just a platitude to say it, but every time I go to a conference, I walk away thinking I'm not as smart as I thought I was because I always pick up something. And the advice that was given to me by one of my doctoral professors was, if you pick up one thing from every conference you go to, it's been a good conference. And I think that holds true. Absolutely. And I think you're not alone in that because I feel the same way. I, I realize you, know, you and I have doctorates in this in, in this field. And uh, when you go to a conference and you're still learning, you, you realize, wow, there's, there's just still so much more to learn. And, uh, and I love that about our field. And I'll confess, I, I'm I'm not a closet geek. I'm out in the open as being a geek. If somebody would pay for me to go to school and get another degree, I'd probably do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good, good, because I'm the same way. It drives my wife crazy. <laughs> I think one of the questions that I really I really would like to get answered is: many people are athletes in high school. A fewer number are athletes in college, and an even smaller number are able to progress beyond college and continue in their sports. And this is especially true if you play what we think of as the traditional sports, baseball, football, basketball. Um, There's the opportunity, if you maybe are in track and field, especially in distance, to continue afterwards. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I know that you were a track athlete in college and a football player in college. What was it that allowed you to identify that, you know, I'm probably not going to go to the next level and I like being active and I need to find something else that I want to do to take up my time? Well, we we had an alumni relay team uh, for, for college and uh, we had a, a pretty good 4 by 100 meter relay team. And uh, I remember we went the first year, we, we actually did pretty well. Uh, and then the second year, some of the guys already started to show up, like with an extra 20, 25 pounds. And uh, it was uh, it was one of those things like, okay, I don't think our four by one can compete with the college guys anymore. Uh, and uh, that, and I also realized that I, I that was only um, the track and field opportunities were, were somewhat more limited. So I wanted to uh, go ahead and venture into something else. Plus, I knew bodybuilding, uh, you could actually do that for a long time. And in fact, uh, well, as an example, the current world champion, number one in the world uh, for men's classic physique, he's almost 50 years old. So you can do it for a long time. I think the question that we have to ask, is it possible to be a physique competitor without using substances that may or may not be legal? It, it definitely is. Uh, you know, obviously at, at the, at the professional ranks of the IFBB, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely more challenging, but it is possible. And there are, there are people that do it. It requires a little more diligence on your part. Uh, but, uh, it, it is possible. There are people that do it. And how much of, as far as somebody's success, not necessarily at the professional level, but at the amateur level, especially as you age, how much of that is genetically driven and how much of that is your ability to follow proper nutritional practices and follow a well-designed uh, workout program? Well, I think, I think uh, you had a good little uh, disclaimer there that you know, maybe not to be the world number one. Obviously, the world's best is going to have some genetic gifts just like in anything. Uh, but to be competitive and to do well, I think 
really anybody can do it as long as, and, and anybody can change their physique. I always like to coach my athletes, don't compete against others, compete against yourself. You know, be the best part that you can be. And if, if you can step on stage and beat yourself every time you step on stage, then you're doing something right. And, uh, and at the end of the day, you are a winner, uh, which is, which is a good mentality to have because, um, as that's the, that's what the whole part of, part of the, the fitness journey and anything really, it's not about the end result. It's about the journey. And, uh, and that journey is where you continue to learn your body, uh, and putting yourself through the discipline to get up and work out every day to, uh, to eat right every day, to rest correctly. Uh, all of those things are, are part of the equation. So I think really anybody can do it. I'm somebody who will be the first to tell you I am not a physique competitor. My area of interest is endurance athlete athletics. And I know with an endurance athlete, even if you start out with just a 5K, it's very easy to compete against yourself because you have a specific time. So you're running 3.1 miles. And if you do the same course every year or you do numerous races, it's very easy to see how you progress or regress and adapt your training as such. How does somebody who is a physique competitor who's competing against themselves, how do they judge how if they're doing better or worse in competitions? Well, that's a good question because often the the competition is going to depend on who shows up. You know, if, there there are some some competitions where you show up and uh, the the quality of competitors is poor and you might win. However, you might bring that same package to another show and uh, where there are very good competitors and you might place 10th. Uh, and, and what's the difference is, is of course, well, how do you look? So I always kind of look for objective ways uh, to, to try to do that. One way is, well, maybe if you're trying to gain hypertrophy, well, okay, what was your, what was your weight on stage? Uh, when you competed, what was your level of body fat? Of course, those are objective numbers and, uh, I, I don't like to only focus on that, but if you want to look for numbers themselves, that, that'll give you an answer. I also look for the symmetry and the proportion, you know, do the muscles look more symmetrical? Does your body flow better? Is your posing better? So these are all different areas that you can actually improve because your placing in the show might not be, uh, reflective of your improvements. And I think, uh, Another question along those same lines to ask is, I have the advantage that our listeners don't have is I got to read your little pre-interview thing, and I see that in addition to doing bodybuilding or physique competitions, you also enjoy bike riding. How does that correspond with the physique competitions? Or are there times when you're preparing for a competition where it's like, okay, I need to back off on the bike riding because doing the aerobic activity may cost me some lean body mass? Yeah, and I would say, uh, you know, my bike riding um, is something that I just enjoy to do more as a leisure activity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I have ridden, the most I've ever ridden on, on one ride was 80 miles, uh, and I've done that one time in my life. Uh, I think nowadays a long bike ride for me might be 8 or 10 miles. So I do that very leisurely. Uh, oftentimes I, I like to incorporate that as part of my off-season uh, type of, of training, when I'm doing bodybuilding physique training for a show, uh, I, if I'm going to do bike stuff, it's usually intervals. I might do it on a trainer or on a spin bike uh, because 
like you said, to do a long ride for two hours uh, is going to potentially be detrimental to maintaining my muscle mass. I think the question that I want to ask that I always ask people when they do something that's relatively long in endurance, and I would put an 80-mile bike ride as much more than relatively long is, would you do it again at some point, or is it, okay, I did that, it's checked off the list, never again? You know, it's it's one of those things, I've, I've toyed with the idea, I, my brother is an endurance athlete, he's, he's, done, an, he's done a couple of Ironman triathlons, he's done, uh, he just did a 50-kilometer run uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, and I've toyed with the idea, but to me, um, the bodybuilding is ultimately my thing, and... Uh, to, to be to have to do that uh, and train for that would obviously I'd have to sacrifice my muscle mass and it's something that I'm personally not willing to do. So at least right now the answer is no. In ten years from now that might change. I'll leave you with a little something to tell your brother the next time you want to give him a little bit of a hard time. The definition of an Iron Man and I've done a number of them. But the definition of an Ironman is where 80 miles into the bike, running a marathon sounds like a pretty good idea because you can't wait to get off the bike. (laughs) I'll have to tell him that. I'll definitely have to tell him that. So as somebody who's completed a couple of Ironman, he'll probably laugh and say, you know, that's a pretty good definition. So you... uh, have competed in physique competitions for quite a while. You balance that with being a business owner and working as a college professor. Somebody who comes to you either for advice or they want to hire you to work with them and they say, I don't have enough time. How do you respond to that? Is there a time commitment, minimum, maximum, or is there a way that you explain to them that, look, you can't have time. It's just sleeping between... 4.30 4.30 a.m. and 6 a.m. suddenly became optional. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, a commitment factor. It, and I actually kind of carry that over into all of my all of my clientele that, that uh, they, they don't have time. And it's, it's a matter of, you know, is it is it really a priority or not? And if it's a priority, you will find time to do it. Uh, now, does that mean you have to rearrange certain things? Well, of course. Are you going to have to make sacrifices? Well, of course. Is your family going to have to make sacrifices? Well, of course. So all of those things are something that uh, you have to know going in, and you just have to prepare ahead of time. Uh, this year, for example, I'm purposely not competing. Last year, I did not compete. I'll be competing again in 2018, but I'm already preparing my family I'm preparing my schedule because I know how long it takes for me to to step on stage the way I want to step on stage. And and when I do it, I want to go all in. I don't I don't like to put one foot in and one foot out. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And that requires a lot of time, a lot of energy. And because of that, um, that's why I didn't do it this year because I couldn't dedicate myself to doing that. So it's a matter of finding that time. Of course, I still train. Uh, I still eat right, but I... And, and that's something that I always incorporate into my life. But to have the pressure of knowing that I have to be on stage in four months, it's it's off my back, and it makes it uh, a little bit different mentality. And I think this is something that listeners would be interested in. Clearly, whether you're participating or competing in a year or not competing, you're still active. 
broad range, what's the difference in hours per week, say, in a year like this where you're not competing versus in the years that you are competing on average? Um, I would say uh, on average right now, I work out, uh, say, between minimum four hours a week, maximum maybe eight hours a week. Uh, when I'm getting ready for a show, <clears throat> very typically, um, it's going to end up being minimum eight hours a week. And depending on how my body's progressing and how much aerobic activity uh, I have to do, uh, it might go up to 15, 16 hours a week. So it, it can be a, a big difference. And how far out do you start the serious training? You said you're competing in 2018. We're doing this interview the second to last week of June of 2017. When are you, or when have you prepared your family to say, okay, dad's starting right now? It's usually, um, I, I, I kind of, we, we do it slowly. So the, the first, there's a three month period. I call it kind of like a build up period where, where now it's, I put the gas on the, uh, the, the, the foot on the pedal a little bit more. Um, and then, then the last six months, it's really full going and we, we don't slow down. We just go faster. So it, it's, it's nine months. The first three months are a gradual progression. Six months are going a little faster and the last two to three months, I mean, you're floored. And is that for a, a bodybuilder or physique competitor such as yourself, is that pretty much one competition a year or are there a competitions where you peak for that, but you may enter other competitions rec recognizing that you're not at peak physique? Yeah, you typically do, um, well, some of the, the world's best that are, that are out there, they might, they might just choose one or two shows a year. Uh, but oftentimes you have to requalify to, for the competitions, uh, if you've been out for a while, you're going to have to requalify. So very typically what I like to do, if, like, like for example, when I compete again, I'm going to have to requalify to go to national level competition. So I will, I will show up and I try to time them to be four to six weeks apart typically where I'm, I'm still in good condition, not necessarily in peak condition, uh, where I can, I can get that qualifier and then I peak for the, for that, for the bigger shows and then, I'm going to do more than one one big show. I, I usually try to squeeze them where they're fairly close together because there's so much effort that goes behind getting to that physique uh, ready, stage ready look that uh, doing one show to me feels like that's a lot of work for one show. So I like to at least get, you know, at least a couple of in, uh, a couple of shows in. And then after you do those couple of shows, provided time commitment with other responsibilities in life, how long would it be before you would compete again? So you say you did a, a did a show, you continued on, and, and a month or six weeks later, you did a second show, and then you would not really take time off since you're always training, but how long before you would go to another show where you could be at peak, uh, peak physique? Typically, it's a minimum of six months for me. But um, I, I have found that when I do it at six months, it's almost not enough time for my body to to respond as well to the training. So I have found that nine to 12 months is a, is a better time frame. Uh, and that's why the years go by so fast in the physique competition world, because uh, you might finish getting off the stage of this show right now. And uh, now you're going to say, OK, let's do let's let's go again. When next year? 
so the, the years go by pretty quickly. And have you found it's harder to prepare as you've gotten older? Um, I, I would say that I have to be definitely more diligent with, with everything. But at the same time, I, I appreciate it more because, well, what I have done is I realized that if I stick to everything that I've written down and I've planned for myself without budging at all, uh, my body actually looks better. So as a younger athlete, you think maybe you get away. But personally, if you look at pictures from, from me competing when I was 24, um, my 38-year-old pictures, 39, when I'm 39, 15 years later, I actually look probably twice as good. So I've actually looked better. And I think part of that is the mentality of the 24, 25-year-old thinking, oh, I can get away with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But when you're older, you, you, you're afraid to. But then ultimately, you see the end result because you actually compare those pictures and you say, wow, it, it really does make a difference. So I, I would say um, maybe it's, it's not harder. I would say it, you're just more diligent at not deviating from the plan. Would you say the 39-year-old wishes the 24-year-old had known what the 39-year-old knows? Without a doubt, because then I, would, then I would really like to see what would that 24-year-old have looked like. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. Now, clearly, competing at the top level, whether it's an endurance sport or a strength and power sport or physique sport, the number one goal is to do as well as possible. If you're at a slightly lower amateur level, even if it's the national level, you still have other responsibilities of life. As somebody who has no knowledge of the physique world, is it possible to do what you do and be healthy doing it? Or is the dieting so restrictive that it can be unhealthy? Yeah, I think the, the dieting uh, can get to the point where it's so restrictive, where it gets to the point of unhealthy. And, and realistically, you know, when, when you compete, if you're, if you're, you get to that super lean stage, you don't feel good. Uh, you look great, but you don't feel good. Uh, you don't have very much energy reserves, and I don't think there's a lot of balance in your life. So I think, I think there's definitely an unhealthy component of, uh, of the physique competition at the competition level uh, when you're trying to get there to look your best. I know one question some people who are not physique uh, competitors are going to ask. They ask me, why do you do endurance sports? And I can talk about sunrises when you're riding your bike up a mountain or a deer that runs across your path. But you know, for a physique competitor, if you see somebody and you've got a competition t-shirt on or you happen to mention at a party that you and your wife go to that you know, I, I'm a physique competitor, and they say, why? What's your response? Um, my response is usually because I like to challenge my physique to look the best that it can look. That's usually my answer. Any thoughts of you and your brother, who you mentioned earlier, endurance athlete, when you hit 60 or 70, maybe taking a year where each of you takes up the other person's sport to see if you can do better than them? A little brotherly competition? Yeah, that 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 would be that would be pretty funny. It, it would be a, a neat thing to do. Um, and uh, we we both come from the same gene, so we we have more of a a power strength gene. So my my brother has willed himself to be a, an endurance athlete. Um, so it's pretty amazing that he's been able to do it. 
We've had the good fortune to talk with uh, Guillermo Escalante. He is a physique competitor. You can hear the first part of the interview where he talks a little bit more about his professional career path. The reason we wanted to have Guillermo on Moving to Live is because not only is he a researcher and a professional, but he's and a practitioner in the field, but he also practices what he preaches by competing as a physique competitor at an age when many people would say, well, I'm too old. I'm just going to sit around and drink beer. Guillermo, thanks for taking time from your commute to the International Society of Sports Nutrition yearly conference to talk with Moving to Live. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, uh, I, uh, I really appreciate you inviting me over. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play, and be notified about a new episode release. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, both at underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. We're a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. Mm -hmm.